One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi everyone, welcome to a very special edition of The Other Hand. Jim and I spoke at a budget breakfast meeting last week. It was a webinar organised by a group of companies going by the name of Octobuild. It was a deep dive into the budget. All things Budget 2024 were discussed by Jim and I and also by the people listening into the webinar, sent in lots of really great questions. Octobuild, the eight member companies are Dulux Paints, Etex Island, Glennon Brothers, Grant Engineering, Chiprock, Irish Cement, Kingspan Insulation, and Webin Ireland. So thanks to them for asking us to speak at this incredibly well organized event, and I hope people enjoy the recording, which is what follows right now. Good morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all to this Octobuild webinar, Budget 24, an economic forecast for the Irish construction industry. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Declan Conlon, Sales Manager with Wavin Ireland and Chairperson of the Octobuild Board, along with my colleagues from Dulux Paints, Etex Ireland, Glennon Brothers, Grant Engineering, Giprock, Irish Cement and Kingspan Insulation. I am delighted to introduce our special guests, Jim Power and Chris Johns. Jim Power has worked as an economist in the private sector for over 35 years and has held positions including Chief Economist at Bank of Ireland Group and Chief Economist at Friends First Group. Jim currently teaches at Smurfit Business School, UCD. Chris Johns is a financial services executive with nearly 40 years experience of banking, stockbroking and investment management. His most recent full-time roles were as Chief Executive Officer of Bank of Ireland Asset Management and Senior Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer of State Street Global Advisors. In February 2021, Jim and Chris launched their own podcast, The Other Hand, providing thought-provoking discussions connecting politics, business and finance, philosophy, economics, and investment markets. Today, they are with us to discuss Budget 2024, 
and in particular its implications for the Irish construction industry. Throughout the webinar, please feel free to put any questions you may have for Jim and Chris in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. We will address as many of your questions as possible at the end of the discussion. This webinar is being recorded and will be made available to you afterwards. With that, I will now hand over to Chris and Jim. Gentlemen, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Declan. Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, Chris, uh, it's good to be beside you uh, recording for once rather than across the REC. It's been a big week, I guess, on the Irish economic and political calendar. Uh, we had the presentation of the budget 2024 um, over the last couple of days. It's always a media circus. Miles and miles of paper, well, maybe not paper at this stage, are, are used to analyse and parse the budget. Uh, the, the economic context in which the budget is presented and the success or otherwise of the budget in terms of achieving its targets is very heavily dependent on the economic environment. And I guess as a small open economy, you know, Ireland, which is very heavily dependent on foreign direct investment, is very heavily dependent on its export performance. Uh, the global economic backdrop is incredibly important. And um, we've seen over the last three years, in fact, with two years of COVID and then the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, we've seen a lot of global headwinds, interest rates are rising, and the global geopolitical situation is incredibly uncertain, risky, volatile, whatever adjective you want to use at the moment. How do you assess the global economy at the moment? As you say, Jim, it's possibly the most important thing to ask as a backdrop to the budget. And if you'd asked me the same question just a couple of weeks ago, I would have said that things are looking pretty okay, stability-wise, in the sense that we kind of sort of know what's going on. Things aren't changing rapidly. The big bounce back of the world economy, and therefore the Irish economy from the pandemic, is more or less over. And we were settling into something not without risks, not without uncertainty, into something of a steady state. That was a couple of weeks ago. Things have changed dramatically over the last few weeks, and actually things are changing by the day, particularly in financial markets. And I'll get onto that in a second. The global economy is split up into three main blocks. That's the way, we, as you know, we economists yeah. think about it. China, for some time now, has been actually struggling. We're very used to the Chinese story as being a growth miracle, that, for the, certainly for the foreseeable future, is over. And the only question that we have about China is, can it grow by very much over the next while? So China, as a, a source of growth for the world economy, which it has been for many years, seems to be a story that's in our past rather than our future. And one of the big uncertainties at the moment is, the, is what the Chinese themselves are going to do about that. They have a tradition, when they go through periods like this, of stimulating their economy. They ain't done it this time. And that's a big change, and that's got to do with the political agenda as much as the economic agenda of Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader. So China is something we look at very carefully, and it's not a great story from a global growth perspective. What is a good story is the United States. People like us, economists, have been talking about slowdown and recession risks and all of that kind of stuff for ages in the States, and it just is one of those things that fails to turn up. The US economy just keeps on going, which is great. Um, it's withstood the rise in interest rates that we've had everywhere, not least in the United States. So the US is the most positive global growth story that we can tell. 
sitting between those two stories is Europe, mm. the third big block. And Europe, quite frankly, is struggling. Not Chinese style, but getting there. Europe is essentially flatlining in terms of growth. Different economies are doing different things. Germany, we think, might be close to recession. Other economies doing a little bit better. But the EU data is that that bit of our environment is pretty steady, unspectacular, and not terribly exciting, quite frankly. Our nearest neighbour is also flatlining. Um, we've been concerned about the UK going into recession for quite some time. It too is stubbornly refusing to go into recession, but it ain't growing very rapidly either. We've had some growth data only out today from the United Kingdom, which shows a smidgen of growth, which is great compared to expectations. So it's a tricky environment, but not a disastrous one. But one of the things that has changed, of course, over the last couple of years has been the inflation and interest rate environment. That's produced all sorts of upheavals. And a couple of weeks ago, we were still worrying about whether or not interest rates would go up further everywhere, including Europe and the United States. And that is changing in a very volatile way every day. Just over the last couple of days, financial markets have decided that interest rates aren't going up again in the United States and aren't going up again in Europe. But it could change again. If that peak in interest rates and inflation is in, then that's a new environment compared to the one that we've been in the last couple of years. And that gives us some hope here in Ireland that interest rates won't have to go up again, which is of obvious importance mm. to the economy and also, of course, to the very interest rate sensitive construction sector. So there is some hope. But unfortunately, the reason why we've got some hope over interest rates is that we've had turmoil in something called bond markets, which is the market in which governments typically, but also corporations, borrow uh, for their longer-term funding needs. And that's been, uh, an, it's an obscure part of the financial markets, but it's been in absolute turmoil. It doesn't make the headlines of the regular media, but it's a very, very important part of financial markets. And they have been, as I say, very volatile lately. First of all, two weeks ago, that point I made about yeah. things changing so rapidly, they was, those markets were telling us that interest rates were going to have to go up again. Now they're saying not. And that's partly because of what's been happening in Israel. Unfortunately, there are financial market consequences of that tragedy mm -hmm. as well. And uh, people in markets are saying that, th that what is happening in the Middle East has the potential to do all sorts of different things. We're playing with scenarios, some better than others. But overall, we're saying that this is going to lead central banks to be more cautious about raising rates further and maybe to leave them alone because of the uncertainties that that situation has injected into energy markets in particular, but also the economy in general. So we have a very fluid international situation. Overall, what people are doing, best encapsulated by the IMF, who this week cut their forecasts a smidge for the world economy for next year. So global growth, we've got some, but people are reducing their forecasts for next year. So it's a cautious environment. Yeah. <clears throat> if I may ask you two questions on what you said. One is, you speak about bond markets and how important bond yields are. Uh, I'd like you to explain how bond yields actually feed through to real economic activity. That's first. And second, if I may, um, I've, I've been doing a lot of presentations over the last couple of days on the budget, and one of the slides I typically use is the latest forecast from an international forecasting agency. In this case, because it's this time in October, I use the IMF's latest because the IMF annual meeting um, is on in Washington, D.C. this week. But I was looking at the IMF's prognosis this time last year for 2023, which was quite downbeat 
and growth actually surprised on the upside. Uh, today, the IMF's prognosis for 2024 is also quite downbeat. I mean, uh, two, two things there. One is, uh, why was there a little bit of an upside surprise this year? And secondly, would you share the IMF's relative pessimism for 2024? How long have we got? <laughs> I will be brief. Bond markets are, are important, and they're more important than most people realise. Um, most people can get on with their lives without ever worrying about bond yields. Thank goodness it's not the sort of thing that most consenting adults should involve themselves with. But from a financial and economic perspective, they're the most important financial market. Not stock markets, not short-term interest rates, not exchanges. The most important market is, is the bond market because it affects everything, including house prices. Bond yields determine all asset market prices, whether it's your fine wine collection, Jim, or your house price or your car loan. Ultimately, it's all priced off bond yields. That's why they're so, so important. They affect everything economically. In terms of the IMF's forecast, you're right to draw attention to their errors in forecasting. As you know, I go on an awful lot about how forecasting is impossible at the best of times, and these are not the best of times. The IMF is always wrong. That's not to criticise them. That's because every forecast is always yeah. wrong, and they have been too pessimistic of late. My own perspective on next year is that provided energy prices don't spike as a result of what's going on in the Middle East, their forecast for 2024 will probably be on the pessimistic side as well. And I fancy that global growth could come in a, a wee bit stronger than the IMF okay. is saying. Okay. Um, on the Chinese situation, in, in terms of the Irish construction industry, for example, I mean, China has been a huge influence over the global construction supply chain. And, you know, when we get strong growth in China and we've had a massive construction boom there for at least a decade, it impacts the whole global construction industry in terms of material costs and so on. And of course, the Ukraine war seriously exacerbated the supply chain, the supply chains for the construction industry. And we saw um, industrial metals prices and so on spike over the last couple of years. You know, you were suggesting there that China is going to be a less significant player in the global economy for the foreseeable. Um, and do you think that's actually going to benefit, for example, the construction industry in this country in terms of the supply chain? What I think about what China will do next probably isn't worth the paper that it's written on because, yeah. it, like the IMF forecasts, we, we really don't know what China is going to do over the next while. As you say, the last 25 years, Jim, have been a story about China um, importing a lot, putting up a lot of commodity prices, basic commodities, um, if you've seen the gyrations in wood prices globally over mm. the last while, that's got an awful lot to do with both China and also supply chain issues associated with the pandemic. The two often need to be spoken about together. What happens in China will depend very much on what the Chinese government wants the economy to do. Yeah. It is a command and control economy, and if they decide they want to give it a boost over the next few years because of the current slowdown, then off we go again. The Chinese growth story will come back. The Chinese growth story for that 25 years has been a construction story. Yeah. It's been about building stuff, and that's why there have been pressures on the various bits of the construction industry. One particular hobby horse of mine is alternative energy. And the one thing the Chinese are doing in this weak economic environment is going absolutely full on for wind and solar, but offshore wind in offshore and onshore wind in particular. So one of the things that's happened is that in the supply chain for all of the components for building out wind energy, there's upward pressure on those prices and the cost of building 
wind energy is going up in a way that it hasn't done really mm -hmm. forever. So it depends on which bit of the construction industry you're looking at. But for the time being, China is not a source of uh, upward pressure on things like um, wood and other basic commodity prices. And that looks like to continue for the foreseeable future, but it could change on a sixpence if the Chinese government decides right, to stimulate so, their economy. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess to summarize from the perspective of the small open Irish economy, um, there are very obvious international headwinds. You know, the global economic outlook is uncertain. Energy prices remain very uncertain. Uh, you've, you've spoken about bond yields and the impact they might have. And, um, you know, in interest rates, in my view, the European Central Bank actually has increased too far at this I'd stage. Agree. It's overkill. Uh, but just because we believe a central bank has gone into overkill territory doesn't mean they might they mightn't overkill a little bit further. But I, I have to say I'd be surprised if the European Central Bank increased again, um, not least because of what's happening in the German economy. Because Germany, you know, is still a manufacturing economy. Um, its energy dependency is very dangerous following the decision to get rid of nuclear power. But so it, it's difficult for me, I have to say, to rationalise why the European Central Bank might tighten again. And I think my perspective would be at this stage for what it's worth is that the ECB will sit on rates for the foreseeable future. But I think um, I'm expecting my budget coverage this time next year when I'm talking about the international environment, I might be alluding to the possibility that the European Central Bank interest rate cycle is starting to move down again. I Do, certainly hope so. Agree? I yeah. certainly hope so. I think that's the right thing to do, and I'd agree with you that they're risking overkill mm. on interest rates as we speak. So given that environment, Jim, this is the global economy that the Irish economy is sitting in. This is the economy that um, the industry of interest to us today, the construction industry, is sitting in. How's Ireland doing? It's been amazing over the last three years, really, with all of those headwinds from COVID, uh, the Ukraine war, rising interest rates, the global economic uncertainty, what's been going on in energy markets. The Irish economy actually has proved incredibly resilient. And if you look at some of the statistics and indicators at the moment, um, we have an unemployment rate of 4.2%, which is virtually full employment. And for every sector of the economy, but particularly the construction sector, um, labour scarcity is a huge problem. Recruitment retention is a huge issue, but it's a very, very, we have 2.643 million people working, which is by far the highest level of employment we've ever had in this country. So the labour market, very, very strong. The, another, I think, I always believe that the exchequer finances and tax revenues particularly give us a really good indicator of what's happening on the ground in the economy. And over the last few years, the Irish tax revenue story has been incredibly positive. Um, income tax, which is the biggest category, is growing very strongly still. And that's reflecting the fact that, number one, employment is increasing and secondly given the very progressive nature of the Irish income tax system in other words the more you earn the more tax you pay the quality of the employment that's being created here is actually improving meaning there's more people paying more tax so the income tax side very strong reflecting the labour market the VAT side and VAT is the second largest component at the moment of taxation um, it's doing pretty well um, not least because, okay, consumer spending is holding up. Not dramatic, it is holding up, but car registrations in the first nine months of the year up 16.5%. And, 
and every car that's sold, new car, there's a significant VAT contribution from that. So that's important as well. So the VAT side is telling us that the consumer side of the economy, notwithstanding all of those worries and pressures and consumer confidence is a bit fragile at the moment, um, is doing okay. And I, I suppose the third part of the economy then that's really significant is what's happening on the export side, uh, because exports have been the engine of growth here over the last number of years, heavily driven by the multinational sector because 65% of merchandise exports out of Ireland are come from the chemical and pharmaceutical industry. And during the period of COVID, that industry boomed here. Okay, because of COVID medicines and they were not, not alone were we producing and exporting more, but the value of those medicines was quite high. We are now in a post-COVID adjustment phase in the sense that uh, we're starting to see a slowdown in the value of exports in the sector. And that has resulted in a situation where there's a 2.4% decline in exports in the first seven months of the year. Exports of chemical and pharma to the United States down 15%. So there's a bit of a structural readjustment going on there. And the other part of the, uh, of the economy that's really important and the chemical pharma side is part of that, but the multinational component of the economy um, is really important. 301,000 people employed, 57% of corporate tax revenues comes from 10 multinational companies. Okay, so the health of the multinational sector is really important. As I say, chemical and pharma, really strong here, but there's a little bit of an adjustment happening at the moment. I wouldn't be terribly concerned about it. I still think it's a growth story. The other part of the multinational sector that's incredibly important is the IT. Um, and we've seen global tech companies laying off a lot of workers here and overseas over the last couple of years. And I think that is now starting to reflect itself in a little bit of weakness coming through on the corporate tax take here. Uh, I could go on forever throwing out statistics, Chris, but I won't. But I, I think suffice to say, the Irish economy is actually doing pretty well at the moment. Not dramatically well, but it's doing pretty well. Um, it is certainly uh, the strongest growing economy in the European Union at the moment, uh, which isn't setting the bar very high, but uh, it, it's a positive story. But I think for the construction industry, uh, the strength of the multinational sector is important because multinational companies invest um, in buildings and physical infrastructure. So it's, it's, it's a key component of construction activity here. And I think it is starting to, um, the exponential growth we've seen is definitely starting to level off. Uh, yeah, but it's I would going agree. to remain a part. Yeah, I, th I think part. the growth story for that sector is, is certainly coming off the top. Mm. I think it's probably a stretch to say it's over, but I think the real go-go growth days, um, for now at least, are over. And there are risks. The OECD tax reforms that were announced this week, yeah. for example, are a further reminder of the risks to that sector. But Jim, what did you think of the budget? I'm pretty cynical about budgets generally because, as I said earlier in my introduction, uh, it's a bit of a media circus, um, it's political posturing. Um, I'd prefer if all of these measures that are announced on Budget Day were actually rolled out during the year and that we didn't make a big circus about it. But that's, that's not the political reality. It is a political process and we have to recognise that. Can I ask you a question um, about yes. that, <clears throat> Jim? It, I've described it as possibly the most political budget 
in the history of the state, that might be an exaggeration, and we can have an argument about that. But certainly it was a very political budget, not least because of the opinion polls and the proximity of the general election. Uh, if, if you lived in Ireland in 1977, Chris, that was a political budget. <laughs> Thank you for that lesson in history, Jim. Yes, indeed. But no, it, it, it was. It yeah. was it and so the question is, and you know what the question that I'm going to ask you is, is that this is designed with the next general election in mind. Yeah. And so, in a way, we're not looking at the... We, we are going to look at the economics, but the primary focus of the budget should be its political consequences. And this is a budget that is not unlike the last budget, actually, and the budget before. And so we keep saying yeah. that they do these smorgasbord, everything, something for everyone in the audience budgets, hoping for a political payback. Is this the definition of madness, that they keep doing the same thing but expecting a different result because they've had no political benefits from following this strategy in the previous two budgets. Why would they expect this one, which is the same essentially as the last couple, to have any different political outcome? Uh, yeah, I mean, bodies like the ESRI, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, the Central Bank of Ireland have come out warning in recent times about the dangers of pumping a lot of money into an economy that is operating at high levels of capacity because they fear it will, it will just spur further inflation. But what those bodies seem to ignore, and probably it's their job to ignore it, but the real politic, the political reality of the budget is first and foremost the most important thing from the political system. My question is the politics. Yes, I'm, I'm, politics I'm, I'm, working. I'm getting to it, Chris. Give us a chance, please. You mentioned general election has to be held by February, the end of February 2025. But there is a more pressing political imperative. Next summer, we're seeing European and local elections. So the budget we saw this week was the last budget before those elections and possibly the second last before the general election. So by definition, it was always going to be an incredibly political budget. And as you say, you know, this has been the story of the last couple of budgets. This budget is a net injection of, or sorry, a gross injection of 14 billion into the economy. That was the budget package, which is huge. Last year was huge, it was 11 billion. And excuse me, the previous year was something similar. So we've seen now three incredibly expansionary budgets. Um, and yet, if you look at the political fortunes of Fine Gael... No benefit. No benefit. In fact, they're lower in the post today. Yes. So why keep and doing it? Why keep doing it? Because I, I, they feel they have no choice. If they don't do it, they'll, they, they'll even get worse flack. But to me, and, and this is the, what I find depressing about the budget process again this week, to me, there is one crisis issue in the Irish economy and in Irish society that is housing, okay? Back in March 2020, when COVID struck, it, it got status as a national emergency crisis, and the state threw everything at it. And we, Ireland came through COVID pretty well, you know, difficult, but we came through pretty well. It beats me why housing never gets the same status. I think this government could turn around next week and deliver another budget package of 14 billion on top of the 14 billion already announced. It would do nothing to improve their fortunes. If you look at what's happening in the opinion polls, uh, the biggest moves are in the younger age cohort of the population. And guess what they all have in common? They can't get on the housing ladder. Rents are incredibly high. So if they announced during the week 
actually, we're going to deliver 100,000 new houses in the next 12 months. I think that's what would turn the political fortunes, but that obviously ain't going to happen. So, yeah, it, it possibly is the definition of madness, but the political system doesn't see itself as having any other choice. Let me ask you a question via an anecdote. I was in a cab yesterday driving past the old glass bottling site on the edge of Ring's End there in, in Dublin, and finally there's stuff being built there. And to my memory, it could be false, that site's been empty for at least 15 years. And we've always wondered, those of us that have lived here, um, in that area, why that site, when there is such need for housing, hasn't been built on. And that could be a metaphor for the economy at large and a response to your point about why haven't they done it. Mm. And if my memory serves, and I don't want to make it about that particular site because there are obviously lots of specific issues about that, um, that site, I think, was an example of something that uh, was in Nama for a while. And I know that Nama is one of your hobby horses about one of the many reasons, and we could talk all day about why we haven't solved the housing crisis, why we haven't built houses. But do you think Nama is at least partly to blame? Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, well, you know what I'm going to answer to that, Chris, because uh, I've, I've said it many times. Um, if, if uh, you know, there's so much spoken about the, the housing crisis in Ireland and why we have a housing crisis, to me, it is pretty straightforward. We just haven't built enough houses. Um, the ESRI's quarterly economic outlook last week um, had a little bit of research in there on housing, and they modelled between 2011 and 2017 we delivered just over 7,000 new housing units per annum, okay? Um, and they were sort of saying that if the political system back in 2011 had anticipated the growth in population, the growth in the economy that was going to come over the next six years, and if they had decided to build 15,000 houses per annum rather than seven, just over seven, what impact would it have had? And the ESRI modelling concludes that um, house prices would be 9% lower if the output had been doubled during that period. So that just shows you there's a significant supply problem here. And indeed, if you look at between 2011 and 2022, we delivered 13,600 new houses per annum. Over that period, the population continued to grow strongly. And in fact, in the April 22 census, we hit the highest population since about 1860. So if you have a growing population, an age cohort in that population uh, that is in the household formation age group, you know, the demand is very strong. Supply has not matched. 
So it's, it's a demand supply problem. And then you think about you know, what has impeded the supply side delivery. And I actually think that uh, there has been a failure to recognize that actually to deliver new housing, you need developers. And when NAMA was formed in December 2009 um, as the National Asset Management Agency, not the National Asset Disposal Agency, the management agency was meant to take the bad assets and work through those over a long period of time to return the best possible um, return to the state. Um, NAMA didn't do that, in my view. It, it disposed of its assets too quickly and left a lot of money on the table. And I think the political system forced NAMA to do that. But secondly, NAMA's treatment of developers, I think, was totally over the top. We all know there are really good developers. There are a lot of reasonable developers. And then there was a few who weren't that great. Okay, But in my view, NAMA treated them all the same. Uh, they were basically taken out of the development game. And if you have not a development community building houses, you're going to have a problem. I'll conclude my anecdote by telling you what the taxi driver said about developers, in that he fell into that trap that I think has been laid very inappropriately by the whole system, which is, he said to me, that all of these developers belong in jail, which of course is a complete nonsense and speaks very much to, to, to what you're saying there. We've, we had lots of specific measures in the budget that ostensibly could help the construction industry. The two big funds, and one of them at least, could potentially in the future help. We've had help to buy, we've had mortgage interest relief, all things impacting on the construction sector. Do you think the budget was good for this sector? Well, I guess in an overall sense, when you pump 14 billion into an economy, it is definitely going to support economic activity, particularly consumer activity, okay? So at a macro level, you pump in that sort of money, fine. I guess my criticism, and I'm going to answer your question, uh, my criticism would be that a significant amount of money was spread too thinly across the overall economy. We all woke up the morning after the budget feeling slightly better off. Nobody's significantly better off. So I, I'd much prefer to see a targeted approach. And to me, the targeted approach should be in the housing area, okay. But um, the setting up of the two funds, I think, is probably the only bit of long-term strategy that we saw in the budget. It is a good idea, and some of those funds, particularly the climate and nature one, will certainly find its way into um, construction activity. So that's certainly supportive in the long but term. But with no details about With when. no detail. Well, that's, that's the point. There is no detail. Then you look at the allocation to housing. Um, between uh, the Department of Housing's funding of housing development and the Land Development Agency and the Housing Finance Agency, it is reckoned there would be five billion available for capital investment in housing, social and affordable next year. I think that's about nine and a half thousand houses. So if those plans are delivered, it certainly means that there will be a strong level of demand from the construction sector in 2024. So I think in that context, the budget um, is helpful, but not dramatically helpful. Um, and I, you know, I, I've, you know, in the podcast, I've been really critical of the sort of short-termism that dominates the budget. There is no sense of a long-term strategy, particularly in relation to housing and the construction 
industry generally. But people have come back and said to me, well, actually, the National Development Plan is more important exactly. than any budget. And um, the National Development Plan really, okay, before I talk about the National Development Plan, one thing that always confuses me actually is what is housing policy at the moment? There are just so many different initiatives. Uh, you get confused about what the long-term strategy, but I think the overriding force driving the construction industry is the National Development Plan. Um, I think the National Development Plan, you know, will ensure continued strong demand for construction activity. It has to, yes. uh, but, but, but it is up to government to make sure that the National Development Plan is actually delivered. And if, if you think about um, you know, what that entails, well, it, housing is a key part of it. We need to build a lot more houses. There is no doubt about that. Um, people will disagree whether it's 35 or 45,000 houses per annum. But the one thing that is sure is that the housing requirement is a hell of a lot more than we are building at the moment. So we, we've got to address capacity issues in the construction industry, however we do that, to make sure that that sort of delivery is possible. Then you look at the, the public infrastructure piece, you know, investment in water infrastructure, um, ongoing investment in roads infrastructure, you know, so th and schools, hospitals. So I think there's going to be strong investment in those areas as well. So, you know, on balance, well, sorry, the, 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 the third part, I guess, then is the commercial and retail. Uh, there's a bit more doubt out there about the commercial property market, for example. Uh, but I think that actually, I, I don't subscribe to the view that we're about to see a commercial property crash here. Um, I think what is going to happen is, and this applies to residential as well, there's going to be a huge focus on retrofitting existing commercial properties. Um, and very expensive. Very expensive, absolutely. But listen, um, if you have the sort of climate objectives that we have, that we are not achieving, um, that kind of money is worth spending. I began my, my bit of this talk um, talking about the international context, and one of the things I often remind people here of is that housing and crisis are two words that are used here in Ireland a lot, yeah. but they're also used in Canada, in the UK, in Portugal, in Australia, yeah. um, and many other jurisdictions. This is a global phenomenon. It's not just an Irish phenomenon. The second thing I would say is that I'm old enough to remember li <clears throat> living here and in the UK when the focus was entirely about jobs. We, are, we have this curious economic situation whereby we can provide lots of cheap housing but no jobs, or loads of jobs and no cheap housing. We don't seem to be able to achieve a happy medium. It's a very curious feature of, of many economies, not, not, just, not just Ireland. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I know loads of young people, actually, of my son's age who are emigrating to Australia at the moment. It's phenomenal. Every week, um, I know one family where all three are leaving together to go to Australia, okay? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and one of the reasons they will cite is uh, housing. You know, it's just too expensive here. They can't get on the housing ladder. Yet I subscribe to the Sydney Morning Herald, and almost every second day there's a headline on that about the housing crisis in Sydney, about the rental market. I mean, at San Francisco, likewise, huge housing issues. You go on and on. Why? Is it so difficult it's to very, deliver? It's very, very complicated, and we can have lots of discussion and disagreement, actually, about what causes what here, and you and I have disagreed about mm. that. I think 
going back to my earlier remarks about interest rates, the low interest rate story, the zero interest rate story of many years has contributed hugely to this problem. But let's not get into that debate, other than to recognise that clearly many countries, not just Ireland, finds it very, very difficult to solve their housing problems. And if there was a magic wand to be waved, somebody out there would have found it. Uh, what is that magic wand? I mean... I think that's a subject. Okay, the uh, tell me about the, how you perceive the planning system here. Well, the planning system here and in the UK, for example, the word dysfunction is used in both jurisdictions, mm. and I think quite rightly. Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party this week, has said, I'm a YIMBY, which stands for yes, yes in my right. backyard, which is being pro-building, pro-construction. And I think it was an incredibly powerful speech a very important speech because it signals if he comes to power, he's going to be very pro-construction, which is, isn't that really interesting? Because in the UK, and I think you have a bit of it here as oh, well, yeah. um, people of a certain age, shall we say, are very anti-construction. They don't want anything built around them. And we've got to change this mindset. And in San Francisco, you mentioned, there is a YIMBY movement. Yeah. Yes, build here, please. Yeah. And I think that's got to be a very important political and social development as part of solving the housing crisis. But there's lots of inputs into housing, interest rates, cost of materials, availability of labour, the cost of labour, all of these things need to be right for this housing problem to be cured. And it, it's, it involves so many factors. Anybody, whether it's the coalition or Sinn Féin or Labour in the UK, solving this problem is far more complicated than a lot of people seem to think. Yeah, well, one of the, the... When Declan was introducing the webinar this morning, you know, the, the title is Budget 2024, and the outlook for the construction industry. So I, I guess focusing in on the construction industry, you know, if you, if you look at the future demands that are coming through, clearly the demand for housing is going to continue to be very, very strong. So there is a long-term requirement to deliver a lot of housing. Independent of the economy. Independent of the economy, absolutely. It's, it's a demographic factor exactly. more than anything else. And, and, and that's kind of depressing in the, from the perspective that we actually didn't plan for the population growth that we've seen over the last decade. And indeed, you could say the same thing in relation to the health service. Okay, so that's... But the, the residential housing thing is going to continue to be strong. Um, I think another area of strength is definitely going to be the whole environmental agenda. Um, as you know, well, as, as we've often discussed, we're both very, very pro-renewable energy be it onshore wind, offshore wind, solar. Um, I think we're just going to have to bite that bullet and get over the nimbyism and deliver um, renewable energy. Because if we don't, the consequences are going to be really serious for us as a country down the road, not least in terms of the fines we're going to endure if we don't achieve our environmental targets, which we're not doing at the moment. Year after year. Year after year, we continue to undershoot. So I, I think there's going to be massive demand in the construction sector for renewable energy. Uh, it's, I, I guess it's, it's a different skill set for the construction industry, but it's, it's certainly one that is out there. Uh, the commercial piece is, um, it, it is a little bit more complicated, uh, but I look out the window here this morning, and how many cranes can I count? Yeah, well, that's been uh, true for many years. It has indeed. Well, it, it sort of was back in the early 2000s. Mm. Um, and then, of course, from 29 to 2015, there wasn't a crane on the left. One prominent really. economist, Jim, has very uh, uh, luridly, shall we say, 
forecast an outright collapse and evisceration of the Irish commercial property market in the newspapers last weekend. And I'm sure you've seen... On what basis? Well, I, I think it's a combination of many things. And I, the two main drivers of it are going back to that story I told earlier on about long-term interest rates, bond yields, the cost of capital for, for that sector has gone through the roof. Um, and secondly, working from home has changed the dynamic mm. for the demand for office space. And of course, there's retail, which is the online shopping story and the fact that so many of our high streets here in Ireland and in the UK and all over the world um, are suffering from, from lack of footfall. Um, and the, the prominent economists I'm referring to put all that together, concluded that we are in for an absolute crisis. Um, I think that was a very strong conclusion. I'm not sure that I agree. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, excuse me, I, I actually don't agree. Um, I, I think the exponential growth we've seen certainly is, is levelling off. Um, but I, I see still strong demand out there for commercial. And um, I, I think the working from home phenomenon is gradually going to dissipate a little bit because it's just not working for all employers. And a lot of employers are now of the view, actually, for many reasons... Uh, we'd like to get as many staff as possible back into the office as, as, uh, as often as possible. May I interrupt you there? Yeah. My favourite saying on our podcast is that everything is, everything connected, is connected to everything else. And the connection there, the dots that I'm joining there, are the very strong labour market point that you posited earlier on. Labour markets are tight here in Ireland. They're tight in a lot of jurisdictions, mm. actually. And the working from home thing, I think, depends on that that at the moment the yeah. power is with the worker and the worker can tell the employer to go sling his or her hook yeah. if they want them to come back to the office. But if that were to turn, if the jobs market were to weaken, I think employers would then gain the upper hand and then we would see a return to the office. So yeah, that's interesting because there was a recruiter telling me recently that they were interviewing a guy for a job and um, they asked him, you know, you'd be or they said to him, you'd be expected to come into the office three days a week. And the guy said, will I be paid extra for that? And it just shows where the power in the labour market is at the minute. But um, one of the things that's interesting about the budget that's presented, every year it's the same. You know, they do these three or four year projections for what the economy is going to look like. And basically the Department of Finance is projecting that over the next four years, real demand in the economy, that's the modified domestic demand rather than the inflated GDP measure, which should be ignored in an Irish context. But real growth in the economy is anticipated to be between 2.2 and sort of 3% over the next three or four years. So that's a solid state economy. But also, if you look at the labour market, they expect employment to grow to over 2.7 million by 2026, and the unemployment rate to remain in a range of 4.2 to 4.5%. So the Department of Finance certainly is not projecting any significant deterioration in the labour market over that period. Of course, and we often talk about the futility of forecasting, this is a forecast, but, but that's the official view at the moment. I, I mean, you mentioned, you know, one of that economist's arguments about the commercial property market is the cost of funding and so on. And the funding model for development is broken here. You know, because we, we have a two and a bit sized banking market now and bank finance for development has seriously uh, been curtailed. So there is a, a funding problem for development in this country. 
and, and that's where I think, and I wouldn't have said this to you 10 years ago, but you know, as the facts change, I changed my mind, as Keynes once said. But I think there is definitely a, a place now for the state to intervene and provide subsidised finance to the development classes to get development on board. And one of the problems with that, of course, is a political one. Well, that politically controversial, Jim. It's, it's very controversial. But when you have a market failure, as we do in the delivery of housing, particularly at the moment, you do whatever you have to do to make sure you address it. Jim, we're running out of time for this bit of the, the, the this morning's events. Um, if I might just ask you to tell me about what you consider the biggest missed opportunity of the budget is, I'll tell you tell you mine. I'll tell you, first of all, my biggest disappointment and second, my biggest missed opportunity. Um, my biggest disappointment was to, to see the re-emergence of mortgage interest tax relief. Yeah. I, I consider mortgage tax relief in any jurisdiction, not just Ireland, because it's a perennial hot potato in the UK as well and elsewhere. Um, it, I call it the cockroach of economic policy making in the sense that the more you stamp on it, the more it just seems to keep on coming back. It's a dreadful, dreadful yeah. idea. The, the Apart from the housing thing, which we've talked about a lot in both the political, social and economic context, the biggest threat to the Irish economy, which we also obsess about as, e as economists, is a financial one, which is the threat to corporation tax revenues, which is derived from the dependence on 10 multinational companies in particular and the multinational sector in general. If you are right in identifying, I think we are, that strategic threat to the Irish economy from the multinational sector either not growing very much in the future or, God forbid, shrinking, then you need to do something about that strategic threat. You need to risk manage, you need to future-proof the economy, whatever piece of jargon you want to use. And the logic takes you then to say, OK, if it's the international sector that is under threat, we need to do something to support and grow the domestic sector. So I would have said that strategically, from that economic perspective, it's not politics, it's not good politics, that it should have been a budget for growing the domestic Irish economy, and in particular the SMEs. And I think a budget for SMEs would have been really great to see from that narrow financial yeah. perspective. Yeah. But I agree, it's not good politics. Not, there, there aren't that many SMEs that vote. Um, but there are a lot of people who, who work for them that, that do. What do you see as the biggest missed opportunity? Uh, well, actually, um, I, the biggest missed opportunity to me, and, OK, I'll become a little bit more specific about it, but we had 14 billion, which is a massive fiscal package, just spread so thinly. I would have much preferred to see a much more focused approach. And where should that focus be? Um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier what's been happening at an OECD tax level this week, the Pillar 2 is being written into legislation in the Finance Bill next week, which is the minimum corporation tax rate of 15% for companies with turnover in excess of 750 million. I think that's about 67 companies in Ireland. Uh, but then Pillar 1, uh, which I think is of more consequence for Ireland longer term, is now, well, there's a momentum behind it. And that means that multinational companies will have to pay more tax in the jurisdiction where they sell their goods and services rather than where their balance sheet is located. So that will affect 
Ireland's corporation tax take. So there is a threat to the multinational presence here and it is essential to make sure we have an alternative sustainable domestic economy. The construction industry is a key part of that, but as is retail, you know, the, the whole sort of domestic economy. And there was very little, in my view, in the budget for SME strategy. Uh, there was a 250 million grant scheme announced. Short on the, detail. Exactly, no detail, we've no idea. Um, I suspect it'll be 250 million spread across thousands of and SMEs. Years. Yeah, exactly. So what, what we the missed opportunity to me, Chris, basically is fundamental investment in um, the stuff that makes Ireland an attractive location to create employment and create investment. So housing is first and foremost, but public services like health, education, um, transport infrastructure. Um, you know, the failure to sort of plan for the delivery of Metro to Dublin Airport, for example, I think is a colossal failure. And I know people will argue, well, a budget isn't to address these longer term issues, but they have to be addressed. You know, so I, I think the missed opportunity is that we didn't focus the 14 billion. Jim, I think we've run out of time for this bit of the session. We've had lots of questions coming in from various people, actually, uh, looking at my screen here, Jim. So we'll start with an easy one for you. Do you think the extension of the Help to Buy scheme until 2025 will increase the, the demand for new builds? In theory, I think it should, yeah. Uh, there, there is a view out there that the Help to Buy scheme actually is a deadweight loss in the sense that it's spending money on something that would have happened anyway. Um, but it, it is part of a housing policy here, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with it. But yeah, I, I think it, it should fundamentally support um, new housing development. But to deliver that new housing development, we need to make sure the capacity is there to deliver it. And that's why I go back to stuff like the funding model for development, for example, needs to be addressed. The planning system needs to be addressed. Um, there is a planning bill going through legislation at the moment. Um, we don't know enough about the detail of it at the moment, but the one thing we need to sure as hell reaches a situation where the, the delay from the inception of an idea to its execution is shortened dramatically. Another great question, Jim. Um, Are they all for me, Chris? I, I'm, glad that you're, I'm, you? I'm glad that you're answering this. If I see one that I know how to answer, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> but it, it short, uh, we'll go on. So this is a great question, actually. Would a reduction of VAT on products and services involved in house building stimulate demand and delivery? in the housing market? Yeah, well, I, I have argued and I've written papers over the last couple of years about the VAT treatment of the construction industry. Um, you know, you talk to developers and some developers have shown me the margins they make on um, housing developments and uh, the tightness of the margins would surprise you. And when you think about the risk involved in development anyway, it's no wonder that the sustainability of development is under serious, serious threat at the moment. And a lot of developers are just pulling back saying it's just too risky to actually do it. Okay, the returns are just too small. So you need to step in then and see, can you help improve the margins, make delivery more sustainable? And reducing VAT, I think, 
would be absolutely an essential part of that. Um, and I go back to the point I make, you know, that, that there is a fundamental view of verboten in the Department of Finance that they don't like tax cuts, they don't like tax reliefs. You know, there's no doubt about that. And, and the increase in the hospitality VAT rate from 9 to 13.5% on the 1st September is, is an indication of how the Department of Finance views these sorts of tax breaks. Um, but when you're in a crisis situation, you do whatever you have to do. We are in a housing crisis situation. So you look at stuff like the taxation of the delivery of housing and you address it. Um, and you may find it politically unpalatable to do that, but it's a crisis. Do it. The next one, Jim, I think I'm going to have a go at. Great. That's all right with, with Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Given the regulations around mortgage lending, how can housing affordability be addressed to ensure people can access a sufficient mortgage? Now, I think that's a great question because clearly there are lots and lots of people out there who would like to get a mortgage but can't. They'd like to get a bigger, bigger mortgage that can't. Maybe that's changed a wee bit with the recent rise in mortgage rates, but certainly a year ago, people were complaining that there, that there were too many restrictions on banks and other lenders in terms of the amount of money they were able to access. The regulations are in place for a reason because we've seen what happens in the past when people over leverage, over borrow. Um, and these regulations, I think, are a good thing because uh, we know what can happen when things go pear-shaped, as they did not too long ago. And one of the things that you and I talk about a lot in all sorts of different contexts, Jim, is, is something called recency bias. I know that's a favourite of yours. And we sometimes forget how quickly things can change. We think that the things that have happened in the last few years will happen forever. And housing is one of those interesting ones for me that um, this is a very personal remark. I think probably shared by nobody. I don't understand the obsession with ownership. I think ownership is vastly overrated, particularly when it comes with debts that are lifelong mm. sometimes. The Bank of England in the UK is getting very worried at the moment because a lot of people are taking out 35-year mortgages. In places like Japan, they've been mortgages that last longer than the people who borrow them. So I think saddling 25-year-olds with, with, with lots and lots of debt is not actually a good idea. But I know how small a minority that I'm in. I wouldn't relax yeah. these regulations, would you? No, and, and in fact, if, if you look at the personal balance sheet in Ireland, you know, one, of the, one of the things that gives me optimism about the sustainability of Ireland at the moment is the fact that a total variance with what happened in 2007-8, the personal balance sheet in Ireland is very strong at the moment in a sense that household deposits far outseed exceed, excuse me, household lending outstanding, okay? Well, that's nobody uh, under 40, is it? Well, yeah, well, uh, well, that's the point as well, of course. This is an aggregate, and aggregates hide a lot of different things. Mm. But in the aggregate, the household balance sheet here is solid. And one of the reasons for that is because the central bank's mortgage lending restrictions. Um, I, I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think they're a good idea because I don't believe banks are capable of behaving properly they do need to be heavily regulated, unfortunately, and those mortgage lending regulations. This isn't a view that's very popular in the construction industry. I know that because I was speaking about five years ago, at a, or pre-COVID anyway, at a conference in London, construction conference, and I had a stand-up row with an Irish developer from Cork in the audience who I would regard as a kind of a friend, really. Um, he's, one to, he's a developer I would really respect. 
um, but he took me to task over the mortgage lending rules. But I, I, I stand by him. I think they're a good idea, but they do create problems. And it is, we need state intervention to address those problems. Unless you are a firm believer that demand creates its own supply. The only, thing, the only thing that would happen if you relax the mortgage lending rules is that the demand for housing yeah, would go up rise. again and that in the very short term that would just raise prices, making that problem even worse. Yeah. Agreed, if you stimulate demand, sometimes that can stimulate supply, but we seem to have absolute constraints on supply that need addressing elsewhere other than just simply increasing demand for housing. In relaxing mortgage rules just affects demand, not supply. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think, I, I think demand side measures are not called for at the moment. No. Mortgage interest relief is There might one. be a time, but it ain't there now. Might be, it ain't now. It's a supply side problem, so we do whatever we need to do to increase supply. I think there's no doubt. I, I would like to take it to task over the home ownership thing. Um, there is an old I saying... I knew you would. Yeah. There is an old saying that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And if you look at the Irish culture, it's a home ownership culture. The first thing we all want to do, you can say it's right or wrong, okay, but it is what it is. First thing we want to do as soon as we can is to buy our own property because it's a sense of security of nothing else. And if you think about younger people today, okay, mm. um, the job for life is a thing of the past. The defined benefit pension scheme is a thing of the past. So the only way younger people can really build up wealth for later in life to pass on to the next generation, if that's what they want to do, is property ownership. I think that you are displaying the thing that you criticise an awful lot of other people for. they dinosaur. Own, well, yes, there's that, but there's also recency bias. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago, Jim, where we, in our culture, both here and in the UK, didn't own property. We rented. And I agree that there are issues in the rental market that um, we, 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 we could talk about. Um, the, 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 the whole culture thing that you, you, you talk about, this obsession that we have with housing, is relatively recent. Our grandparents and people before them didn't own houses. People in Europe still rent rather than buy. And it's a, as I say, it's a personal thing. Um, uh, ownership is, uh, is overrated, provided you, you have a good I disagree rental you. market. I know, I know. Um, but let's go to another question. Um, and I think this is one for you as well, particularly uh, from a personal perspective, Jim, if I might say. Is the increase in vacant property tax to five times the property's existing basic local property tax, from three times, I think, mm. um, sufficient to have an impact in bringing these properties back to the market? If not, what should be done? Well, if, if three times isn't sufficient, I don't think five times will be sufficient. And okay. was it? Uh, no, not really. No, there's still, if, if, if you look around, there's, there's a lot of vacant properties. I, I, I think... The solution to the housing market, it's, it's a multi-pronged thing. You know, I spoke about the, develop, or the, the funding model for development, uh, the planning system, but I also think we need to have incentives for, you know, vacant properties above shops, for example. Um, regulations need to be changed if necessary to make sure that they can be transformed into um, living quarters. And, and the benefit of that would be it will bring more vibrancy back into villages, towns and cities because you get more people moving back in to live. So I, I think there's just so many things, but addressing, I, sorry, in answering that question, I don't think that if three times didn't work, 
but you didn't really, as far as I understand it, five times ain't going to work. So you just need to step in uh, with the big hand of the state and say, that property has to be taken out. Sort of use it or lose it type exactly. rules and regulations. Exactly. Um, not a popular view, but as I say... Well, that would apply not just to vacant residential property, but presumably vacant high street properties. Oh, big time, absolutely. I mean, when I, I, I get the bus into town regularly, and if you go down through streets like Rap Mines, or place like Rap Mines, Camden Street, the number of derelict properties I think is you forget, Jim, that, that, that the right to ownership is protected in the Irish it Constitution. It is, it is indeed, it is indeed. So that would be very difficult. Oh, very, very difficult to do, but uh, how else are you going to get those properties back in? I mean, it's a win-win situation. You know, the, the, the streetscape improves dramatically. You get more people living, you get more business. It becomes virtuous. Given cycle. that it might involve constitutional issues, that might be a trickier referendum than the recent divorce. Oh, it's, it's, <laughs> it would be a very tricky referendum. But, uh, you know, I, I just say, Chris, again, I keep repeating myself on this. Housing is a crisis. Mm. So in a crisis situation, you do stuff that you might never have thought about in the past. We're coming close to the end, I know, and um, uh, we've still got loads of questions, so um, it's great, thank you. And I apologise if we're not getting round to your particular question, but here's an impossible one for you, Jim. And um, I Rolf know... for Jim, aren't they? Uh, well, no, I've had, I've, I've had a go at one or two. Where there is an obvious shortage of skilled tradespeople here, what can be done to keep young, qualified tradespersons from leaving the country? I mean, one, and the question I would add to that is, what can we do to increase the supply of skilled young people? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting. We discussed in a podcast recently a piece that William Hague, the former leader of the Conservative Party, wrote. I think it was in the London Times. That's right. Um, he was basically arguing that people under 30 should pay significantly lower rates of tax than people aged over 30. Uh, I would take that up to 35. But I think to keep young, skilled craftspeople in the country, uh, tax incentives are absolutely essential. But, 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 but secondly, uh, there's not enough money being invested in training people with those skills because you know, there's just a total focus on sending people to college to get degrees, uh, many of which are pretty meaningless. There needs to be a focus on training for people who want to work in the construction industry. You know, that, that definitely, there has to be a much greater focus on that. Uh, and that starts in primary school, actually, and secondary school. And so you, you create a different sort of culture. Um, I also, and I, I'm, I'm not an expert in this area, but I, I suspect that the whole work permit situation here has to be part of it as well. If you think back to what happened in 2002, with the, the, the major enlargement of the European Union. Ireland was one of the few countries that had a very open-door policy. So we got a lot of workers in at that stage who worked in the construction sector. Um, so we, we look at overseas labour supply. It has to be, I know it's an important part of the industry at the moment, but if there are work permit issues preventing workers from coming into the country, they need to be addressed. And I'm not an expert. I'm not sure, quite sure what the situation is, but if there is a problem, we need to address it. And, and of course, the other problem is, if you are going to attract workers in from overseas, where are you going to house them? It's a sort where, of Where a, are they going to live? A, the, the, the point that you make there about culture, I think, is incredibly important, because I think this is yet one, another example 
of where culture trumps economics. In the, I, and this is an anecdote, and I know anecdotes aren't data, but I was visiting a friend of mine who's redeveloping a house, his own house, recently, uh, only last week, and I was, got there as the team of electricians, plumbers and carpenters were all finishing for the day, and without exception, they all got into cars that were less than a year old, and they were either a BMW or a Mercedes. Those trades in the UK are possibly even in more short supply than they are here. Yeah. But they are incredibly well paid now yeah. because they are in such short supply, the old supply and demand thing. But the economic incentive to become an electrician, plumber or a carpenter, is the economic incentive is very strong. You can be very well paid, but they're still not going into it. And I think that speaks to the culture point. Yeah. It starts in the schools in yeah. which you have to re-educate people genuinely to believe that there is as much value in those trades as doing a degree in history. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree 100%. And it is a culture thing. And culture starts actually in primary school, I it think. Does. Yeah. Are we getting close to the end? We are. So perhaps I'll end hand back to our chair, Declan. Thanks, Chris. And many thanks to Chris and Jim for a most interesting and thought-provoking discussion. Um, I think the description of housing as a national emergency or crisis will certainly ring true for many people on today's webinar. Thanks to everyone who attended today uh, and also to those who sent in questions. Uh, as I said earlier, the event has been recorded and it will be made available to you over the coming days. Uh, you will also receive a, a short survey on the webinar and we would very much welcome your feedback. And on that note, I'll say goodbye and wish you all a great day. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else custom spray five and one only from rustoleum